gracious and loving God, we ask your blessing upon us as we study your word. We pray that the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts in this study would be pleasing in your sight. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. These are the words of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the remaining elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the Queen Mother, the court officials, the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the artisans and the smiths had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisa, son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, son of Hilkiah, whom King Zedekiah of Judah sent to Babylon to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom, whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let the prophets and the diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, says the Lord. For thus says the Lord, only when Babylon's 70 years are completed will I visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for harm, to give you a future with hope. Then when you call upon me and come and pray to me, I will hear you. When you search for me, you will find me. If you seek me with all your heart, I will let you find me, says the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. All right. Thank you for that wonderful reading. So we're now in Jeremiah 29, and we are shifting the tone of the book. We're not yet to a full-throated theology of hope and redemption. That's going to come in Jeremiah 30 and 31. However, uh, we are shifting to something beyond judgment. And what we have here is a letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem. And so the prophet Jeremiah has been left behind to all of those who have been taken into exile. And we're told that King Jeconiah and his mom are in exile, all the court officials, the leaders, the artisans, the smiths, basically anyone of prominence was deported and taken to Babylon. And so this is after the siege of Jerusalem has taken place. We've spent a lot of time warning that the siege would happen, but now it has happened and Jeremiah is writing to the exiles. And notice he doesn't say, told you so, 
I mean, right, he has been warning them, he has been persecuted, he has been put in the stocks, he has been publicly shamed. Uh, and so just notice this prophet doesn't uh, write some mean letter of um, self-vindication. Rather, he is trying to get the people to understand what God's will is for them in the midst of exile. This is about, okay, now you're in exile, you're living in Babylon, the unthinkable has happened, the temple has been destroyed, God's people have been taken out of the city where God has put his name, namely Jerusalem. What does this mean? Is this the end of our life? And Jeremiah says no, right? Because part of what Jeremiah has been saying all along is that God is going to send the people into exile, that exile is the natural consequence of their infidelity to the covenant, of all the idols they've been worshiping and the false gods they've propped up, and that God actually has a purpose for them in the midst of exile. And this letter really is about that purpose and how they are to live. And what we're going to find in this letter is a tension, a tension that if we're sensitive, we're going to notice in our own life, and attention that is then going to get reinterpreted uh, in the New Testament as we think about what it means for us to be in exile. I'll say more about that here in a bit. But what Jeremiah says in verse five is first, you got to build houses and live in those houses. You need to plant gardens and multiply. And by the way, whenever we hear plant a garden and multiply, that should bring us back to the book of Genesis, where the first humans are placed in a garden and told to be fruitful and multiply. Basically, this mission that is entrusted to humanity from the very beginning is still present, right? Plant gardens and multiply. Um, eat what the gardens produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters and, you know, some people have interpreted this as um, permission to marry uh, Babylonian women. And, 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 and maybe that's there, maybe that's not. But I don't think that's actually what's happening because um, anyone who studies the Old Testament knows that the, the whole topic of marrying outside of Israel is a complicated uh, question um, and the different biblical authors have different perspectives, right? So Moses, um, you know, he was married to uh, different women outside of the tribes. Um, yet we're going to find that uh, whenever Nehemiah and Ezra return to Jerusalem, they're going to have the people put away their foreign wives. And so we know that some people in exile took Babylonian uh, wives and and had uh, children, and that that was kind of a complicated reality for those 70 years. But what I think that Jeremiah is telling them and saying, you know, take wives and get married, that this is actually a call for them to continue to build families within Israel, because that's how they maintain their religious identity, right? That I mean, that, that, is, that is how the people of Israel uh, maintain their identity and 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 really frankly how any it's how any of us in a sense maintain our identity um that might be an overstatement but uh it, it it's why 
uh, having children was considered such a blessing and why barrenness was a curse. This is how God's people continued on. There was a big uh, push to have children and to have big families because ultimately this is about maintaining their religious identity in a foreign land uh, to ensure that their faith and the traditions that God gave Israel were passed down to the next generation, right? So one of the things that Jeremiah says is you have to maintain your separateness, you have to maintain your distinctiveness as my people, and you need to have a firm identity as my covenant people, and you have to pass that down to the next generation, right? So there's this call to be separate, a call to be holy. But on the other hand, verse 7, it says, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. And so notice what God does not give the people permission to do. He doesn't give them permission to hate the city. He doesn't give them permission to hate their captors or to avoid them. But to seek the welfare of Babylon is, in a sense, to be immersed appropriately in Babylon. Um, you know, for 70 years, they're going to live there. And so in a sense, they have to do business with this pagan culture. They have to figure out how to be in relationship with their neighbors, how to love their neighbors, how to meet their neighbors where they can without sacrificing who they are as God's people. And in a sense, um, I really think that this might be the tension all of us find ourselves in if we take uh, our baptismal identity seriously. Um, because on the one hand, you know, in the Episcopal Church, we have a baptismal covenant. Uh, there are things that we stand for and things that we don't stand for as people who are baptized into the body of Christ. And we can't just do any old thing that the world says is okay. Now, we all have different understandings of what's appropriate and what's not. And you know, Christians um, all over America have different lists of what's appropriate and what's not. But I've never met a Christian who says, I can do anything I want uh, that the culture says is okay. Every Christian has some critique of the culture, and that's what it means to maintain their religious identity. But on the other hand, um, our call is to seek the welfare of the city where we find ourselves, to pray to the Lord on its behalf, and to know that somehow the welfare of this world and our welfare are somehow tied together. You know, that God's not going to just like rapture us out of this crooked planet and then, you know, burn the earth up. That's not actually Christian theology. Uh, Christian theology is that at the end of the age that heaven and earth will marry, right? That the new Jerusalem will come down from heaven and somehow um, the old creation and the new creation will just become God's creation, but that the earth itself will be redeemed. And so how is it that we maintain our separateness and at the same time engage this world fully and wholeheartedly and build relationships that's really the question I think Jeremiah 29 asks. Um, we're told in verse 10 that their time in Babylon will be 70 years. Um, in, in the Old Testament, 70 is really a symbol of completion and fulfillment. 
when Peter asks Jesus how many times he has to forgive, uh, Jesus says 70 times or 70 times seven. Um, Daniel prophesies about 70 weeks. Moses appoints 70 elders. There are 70 nations descended from Noah. So this number 70 appears a lot in the Bible, and it's always meant to point to wholeness. And so the time that people spend in exile will be the full allotted amount. It will be thoughtful. It will be a holistic number. Um, and, and I think this number 70 points to God's intentionality. Um, we're not to read this as like a prison sentence, that the number 70 points to wholeness. Um, but after that wholeness has been completed, verse 10 God will visit the people. Um, that's the verb we have. God will visit them and God will fulfill his promise and bring them back to their land. And then there's that great verse, Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And the reason this is so important is because there has been so much judgment. There's been so much holding the people accountable for their sins. There's been so much asking the people to look in the mirror and to see their lack of faithfulness. And what God is trying to communicate is even my sending you into exile, even um, my allowing you to be carried off is part of a future with hope that I have in mind for you. Uh, when you call upon me and pray, God says, I will hear you. And this brings to mind that great verse in Second Chronicles where God says, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. Basically, God says, I will forgive your sin and I will heal your land. Um, if you seek me with all your heart, verse 13. Now, Jeremiah has already said that this heart that we need uh, to seek God with, he says that it's perverse and devious above all else. Who can understand it? And so if we're going to seek God with all our heart, God will first have to fix our heart. It's almost like we need spiritual heart surgery and Jeremiah 30 and 31 will have more to say about the work that God must first do in our heart if we are then going to seek God with our heart. Um, God says that he will restore the people's fortunes, which brings to mind Job and the giving back of that which is lost. We're told that God will gather the people. Um, this brings to mind Isaiah eleven twelve where it says God will raise a signal for the nations and assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. It also brings to mind that image of the shepherd, right, who leaves the 99 behind to go find each of the sheep that gets lost. This image of the shepherd gathering his flock back, bringing them back, uh, is a big theme in the book of Jeremiah. So I'm not going to read all the passages I have here from the New Testament, but I'm just going to read a few snippets because so much of the New Testament is trying to speak to the question about how is it that we are to live 
in our experience of exile. So you and I have not been carried off to Babylon, but there is a sense in which um, we all live our lives east of Eden. And we all live our lives waiting for Christ's return. We all live our lives waiting for justice to come to this earth fully. And we both have a hope and an experience of God present in our life now, but also an experience of longing, right? I mean, there's a sense in which we are in Babylon waiting for God to bring us home. And so what do we say about this? How do we live? Uh, in First Peter, it says, prepare your minds for action, discipline yourselves, live in reverent fear during the time of your exile. So Peter uses the word exile. You are currently in exile. So live your life with reverent fear. Um, Paul says in Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven. And it is from there that we are expecting a savior who will transform the body of our humiliation so that it may be conformed to the body of his glory. Again, you know, Paul uses that imagery of citizenship, that your true home is not where you are, right? You live in Babylon, but your citizenship is in Jerusalem. Um, in the Gospel of John, Jesus prays, uh, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but only that you protect them from the evil one. So uh, Jesus's prayer was that we would be protected as we live in exile, and then finally, the book of Hebrews, um, they confess that they were strangers and foreigners on the earth for people who speak in this way, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land they had left behind, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Indeed, he has prepared a city for them. And so again, this theme of being a foreigner and a stranger looking for a better country, uh, this also shows up in the book of Hebrews. So some questions before we go to conversation is, is exile a good metaphor for the human experience? And if so, what are we in exile from? Um, how are we ever going to get home? And how are we supposed to be living in the meantime? And again, to go back to this tension in the book of Jeremiah, on the one hand, if we cozy up too much with this world, you know, if we just drop our customs and become Babylonians, metaphorically speaking, we have forgotten that the 70 years is a temporary time and that God is going to bring us back to that which is our true home, right? So if we cozy up too much with the world and try to find our life and identity there, that doesn't really seem like a good option. But on the other hand, in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Pray to the Lord on behalf of the city where you find yourself. If we disengage from the culture, if we don't, um, if we think that we're better than the culture, if we don't, um, you know, somehow be in relationship with people in a really authentic way, there's something off about that too. Because the irony of all this is that, you know, I think that Israel's mission was summed up really well in Isaiah, 
where it says, I've given you to be a light to the nation so that my salvation may extend to the ends of the earth. So the people were not living into that mission. Well, guess what? Whenever they're sent into exile, all of a sudden, they have a wonderful opportunity to be a light to the nations. You know, pray for Babylon, God says. Work to make Babylon better. This sounds a lot to me like being a light to the nations where you're sent. And so in a very odd way, their experience of exile is God really pressing them to fulfill their calling as the people of Israel with a mission outside of themselves. And, you know, the church can't be a missional church if we don't engage the culture, if we don't meet people halfway. And so what does it mean again to fully engage the culture, to love the world, to pray for the world, to say, I am no better than anyone else. There is not a person in this world who is better than me or worse than me, right? I'm just a human being like everyone else. But at the same time to say, I have been baptized. I do worship a Lord who laid down his life. And I do have a call to conform my life to that pattern. And that means I can't do everything the world says.